The Thirteenth Guardian Chapter 2 Rome, August 7th, 6.40 p.m. Central European Time Eli had been working on the restoration project for two days and was in awe that he was responsible for caring for an ancient piece of cloth that had also been touched by Moses several thousand years earlier. It felt as awe-inspiring as he imagined it would feel to have the Shroud of Turin in his hands, something that he had often dreamed of doing one day. Eli grew up as a poor farm boy in a strictly Catholic home in the hills of Croatia and always felt an insatiable draw toward a higher power and the history of the world's greatest religions. As a young boy, he would wake up before dawn and ride his bicycle for hours to the library in Kutina, ten miles from his home. He would spend the whole day reading anything he could get his hands on about ancient religious history. He read translations of the Takenuchi manuscripts, twice over by the age of fourteen. He once smuggled a translation of the Hindu Vedas out of the library because the building was closing down for two weeks of repairs, and he could not bear the thought of having to wait that long to finish reading it. So when it was time to go to college, Eli chose to pursue his studies at Oxford University under Professor Haim Moyel, who was a world-renowned and foremost authority on religious antiquities. Toward the end of his freshman year, Professor Moyel approached Eli with an extraordinary proposition. He asked if Eli would be interested in spending the summer at the Vatican, working with the head of the Restoration Department, who was a former classmate of the professor. Eli did not have to think twice. He immediately accepted the opportunity. His parents were not terribly excited about the news because Eli promised to come home in the summer to help around the farm as they prepared the season's harvest of olives for sale to the international merchants at the nearby port of Rayeka. Eli had promised himself that every month he would send whatever little money he could to help his parents pay for everyday expenses around the farm. His parents were growing old, and he knew his decision to spend the summer in Rome meant that they would need to employ a farmhand to help with the harvest, something that his parents could barely afford to do. Eli came from several generations of farmers. His parents expected that he would continue the family tradition and dedicate his life to farming as his father had done. But unlike his younger brother, who at thirteen was already proving to be very handy at repairing old farm equipment, Eli knew that he was called to something different. He was a scholar, the first in his family to leave the farm to attend college. The only way he could keep his guilt from getting the better of him was to periodically deposit small amounts of money into his parents' account from his paltry apprenticeship salary. Every evening as he walked off the Vatican grounds through the East Gate, Eli looked back in amazement at the dome atop St. Peter's Basilica, the epicenter of the Catholic faith, and sent a quick thought of gratitude to his professor and mentor at Oxford. Today, as he looked back at St. Peter's Basilica, just before he walked out of the gate, he wondered to himself, how many people can say that they have held 4,000 years of history in the palms of their hands? Not bad for a day's work, he murmured quietly to himself. He was lost in his thoughts when someone almost knocked him over completely as they rushed by through the Vatican's east gate. Scusa me, Eli gasped, and bent over to pick up his work papers that had been strewn on the ground by the force of the collision. He felt a sharp sting in his shoulder, 
his old injury rearing its head. He dislocated his collarbone a few years prior while playing rugby on his high school team. Eli looked up and immediately recognized the person who almost knocked him on his back, and it made sense. Leo Machetto was an Italian national who Eli had gotten to know a few years earlier when they rivaled each other in the International Collegiate Rugby League. Leo, the captain of his rugby team, was one of the toughest people Eli had come across. If you got in a fight, you wanted to be fighting with Leo and not against him. Eli, I am so sorry. I did not mean to run into you like that. Are you okay? Uh, just a few broken bones, but I think I'll be fine, he grimaced through a smile. How are you, my friend? I thought you were somewhere in the United States. Eli had not seen his formidable competitor in two years, but happened to know that he had recently graduated from the University of Cambridge with a degree in astrophysics. He also recalled someone mentioning that Leo had taken a job with the astronomy department at the Vatican and had been posted to Arizona at one of the most advanced observatories on the planet. Yes, I was, Leo responded, wide-eyed with surprise. He did not expect that Eli knew about his job in Arizona. When did you get back? You chose a great time to return to Rome. It is sweltering, probably hotter than the desert in Arizona. Eli thought it was curious that the Vatican had an observatory on Mount Graham, a couple of hours east of Phoenix, Arizona. Right next door to the observatory on Mount Graham is the famed Lucifer Telescope, whose name has led to many conspiracy theories about what might be going on at Mount Graham. The fact that the Vatican had a big legal fight spanning many decades with the Apache Native American tribe in the area to take this sliver of land from them and build several secretive observatories has not helped quash any of the conspiracies. For some odd reason, this particular mountain in an arid, rural part of Arizona was of especially high importance to the Vatican. I just got back this morning. Leo paused, weighing what to say next. It's been a crazy few days, Eli. Eli noticed that Leo was not using those words lightly. It has. What's going on? Are you in some sort of trouble? Can I help in any way? After a slightly lengthier pause, Leo replied, Eli, you have been a great friend over the years we played rugby together. I enjoyed our passionate debates about religion. I'm not sure what's happening, but all I can tell you is that when I went to work yesterday morning at the observatory, it was a pretty normal day. Coffee, donuts, CNN on the overhead TVs, the usual American stuff. But by 2 p.m., the head of the observatory asked us all to drop everything immediately and head home. What? Just like that? Out of the blue? Leo was visibly distressed. Yes. Can you believe it? No explanation. All we know is that an emergency was declared at the observatory at 8 a.m. yesterday as most of us came into work. All staff were sequestered in a conference room, and the top three directors of the observatory spent the next few hours studying the telescope monitors very closely. When they were done, they rushed from the main floor to a private call with the Vatican in the director's office. Two hours later, we were all asked to shut everything down, speak to no one, and head home. The directors looked like they had seen a ghost. It was quite scary, to be honest. So here I am. I got on the next flight out of Phoenix and landed in Rome this morning. Eli now had a look of concern on his face. But you seem like you were in a rush just now. You look a little worried. Did you get any more information about what happened? 
Well, three top scientists and the junior analyst, my friend Marco, who was manning the Lucifer telescope yesterday, were flying back on the official Vatican plane. I just saw on the news that an unmarked private plane disappeared off radar somewhere in the Alps a few hours ago. Our planes are sometimes unmarked, and I've not been able to get in touch with Marco. I have a bad feeling about this. Leo, I'm sure they are okay, and that could be any plane. I fear something terrible has happened, Eli. Leo, increasingly agitated, pushed Eli aside and called out, I have to get to the bottom of whatever is going on. He stomped off toward the office of the head astronomer at the Vatican. Despite the heat, Eli decided to take the long route home. Something about the tone in Leo's voice gave him a sense of unease about what had happened in Arizona. He tried to convince himself that there was a good explanation. Perhaps the observatory wants all their staff to come back to Rome to discuss a new discovery in the physics of planetary motion or something. Eli walked down Via della Conciliazione, which heads east from the Vatican toward the Tiber River, known locally as the Fiume Teviere. He loved to walk along the river. It had a mystical quality about it, which helped him clear his head. As he approached the Sant'Angelo Bridge, he stopped for a moment and looked left at Castel Sant'Angelo, which was once the tallest building in Rome. Castel Sant'Angelo was built by the Roman Emperor Hadrian around 125 A.D. as a mausoleum for him and his family. At the top of the castle is a statue of the Archangel Michael, renowned for leading God's armies against Satan's army in the final battle in the Book of Revelation. Something about standing in the shadow of the Archangel Michael this evening caused Eli to stop and stare at the statue. He noticed for the first time that Archangel Michael appeared to have just unsheathed his sword, as if the time for the final battle prophesied in the Bible had finally arrived. Eli observed that Michael had a calmness etched on his face that evoked both sadness and resolve. Eli tried to shake the apprehension that suddenly enveloped him. As he turned back to continue his walk down Longotiveri Prati, Eli thought he heard a strange sound. It felt like it came from inside his head. He kept walking, but as he did, he noticed two other people on the street pause with a look of bewilderment, as if they had also just experienced something, but did not quite know what it was. He slowed down his pace as he noticed a few more people look at each other and ask whether they heard the same sound. Some shrugged it off, while others expressed confusion. Half a minute later, Eli heard a deep bellowing noise, but this time it sounded like it came from something close by. It lasted three seconds. As he whirled around expecting to see a truck or large vehicle, he saw that others around him were also looking around puzzled. There were no trucks or any large vehicles anywhere in sight. This time, most people around Eli stopped in place, sure that they heard something. They each stood still and listened. What Eli and the people around him did not realize was that all across Rome, on the streets, in office buildings, in homes, and on playgrounds, most had stopped in their tracks because this time, unlike half a minute earlier, they were all sure they had heard what sounded like a deep trumpet or horn very close to them. But when everyone looked around, there was nothing in sight that explained the sound. 
A passerby turned to Eli. Did you hear that? I did. I thought it was just me a minute ago, but now I'm certain I heard a deep mechanical horn of some kind. Sounded like it was above my head. Eli had a bewildered look on his face as he said the words out loud. It made no sense to him. I thought I was going crazy, said the lady, as she looked around nervously, wondering what could have caused the loud sound. Like Eli, her sense was that the sound came from directly above her, but she was walking along Lungotevere Castello, which was lined with trees on the left and the Tiber on the right. There were no tall buildings in the vicinity. Rome immediately became eerily silent as most people stopped what they were doing to listen and see if the sound would come again. For most, the sound struck a chord in a place inside them that evoked an unknown fear. Little children started to cry uncontrollably, and grown adults suddenly had an odd anxiety overcome them, and no one understood why. The clang of cutlery against plates in cafes stopped. The honking on busy streets of Rome and the revving of thousands of Vespas suddenly halted. The banging of jackhammers at building construction sites paused. Rome had not been this silent in thousands of years and the silence was broken once again by the same terrifying sound, this time louder, deeper, and more pronounced. It lasted seven seconds. From everyone's perspective, it sounded like it was coming from the sky, as if from a giant loudspeaker above their heads. But as everyone heard it above their head, they also felt it reverberate inside the core of their bodies. They all expected to see something terrifying emerge from the clouds above but nothing did. Over the next five minutes, the terrifying metallic horn boomed four times, each time for ten seconds, as if calling the world to stop whatever it was doing and pay attention. And Rome stood still. For ten more terrifying minutes, everyone in Rome, young and old, poor and wealthy, stopped whatever they were doing, looked up at the clouds, and shuddered in complete horror every time the sound rang across the sky. And then it was over. For five minutes Rome continued to stand still in dreadful silence, waiting for the next trumpet to fill the air with its deafening roar. Five minutes turned to ten, ten to fifteen, and then to twenty, when it finally seemed to have stopped. The residents of Rome started to move again, slowly returning to their routines, but treading cautiously. Idling engines of cars and Vespas slowly began to rev up again and inch their way around. The hum of whispered conversations in office buildings, homes, restaurants, and along the streets hung in the background. Deep inside, everyone shrouded a nagging sense of fear, a sense that the sounds of the grinding metal trumpets in the sky were a warning horn of something more terrifying yet to come. Everyone in Rome had just experienced the same feeling as the people of Guatemala had experienced a few days earlier after hearing the same thunderous sound of trumpets in the sky. The feeling of despair was palpable. Eli could see it on everyone's face. He continued to walk slowly toward his apartment, and as he turned right onto his street via La Cosa, he reached into his bag and put a hand on the Bible his mother had given him two years earlier. His heart pounded with dread 
and his thoughts raced. He recalled the verses in Revelation that described the seven trumpets in the final days, and wondered whether John, the writer of the book, heard the literal sound of trumpets in the sky in his visions of the last days. And here's a special behind-the-scenes look with the author K.M. Lewis. Connect with the author at 13thGuardian.com. Here are some truths that I found absolutely astonishing as I researched the book. The Lucifer Telescope is real. The Vatican Observatory on Mount Graham in Arizona is real. The long legal battle the Vatican has had with the Apache Native American tribe to wrestle away this sacred piece of land is also real. No one understands why this specific piece of land is so important to the Vatican. The sense of awe and majesty that Eli feels as he walks past Castel Sant'Angelo and the statue of St. Michael is very real. The Bridge of Angels, which leads up to it, is lined with an additional ten imposing angels who only intensify the mystical aura that envelops him. It felt natural to make the moment that Eli walks across the bridge into the shadow of St. Michael a pivotal point in the early part of the story. In many ways, that moment in Rome is a marker for the beginning of the catastrophic events that unfold around our main characters. Here's another truth that may be difficult to believe. There have been many videos posted online recently from around the globe with loud trumpet sounds coming from the sky. Reports of these sounds have been covered by Inside Edition, CBS, The Telegraph and other news outlets. No one knows whether the sounds are real, a hoax or what is causing them. What is certain, however, is that the trumpet sounds are like nothing you've experienced before. They have an apocalyptic quality to them that strikes a primal nerve deep within and elicits a sense of foreboding, like they are telling you to stop whatever you're doing to witness something. It's interesting that after 20 to 30 minutes of these mysterious booms, Eli and everyone in Rome tries to suppress their worst fears, and that's just our human conditioning, isn't it? When confronted with a reality that is so chilling and so all-consuming, we prefer not to face it head-on. We want to look the other way and pretend it's not there. But in Rome, the nagging sense of fear that they are all left with will prove to be well-founded. 